0: So, if you have your Bibles this morning, uh, and turn to Ruth, if you would, the book of Ruth in the Old Testament. If you don't know where it is, man, just go to the, the table of contents. You'll find it early in the Old Testament. James Sisu has made a very insightful observation when he wrote the following. He said, let it never be forgotten that glamour is not greatness, that applause is not fame, that prominence is not necessarily eminence. The man of the hour is not apt to be the man of the ages. A stone may sparkle, but that does not mean it is a diamond. People may have money, but that does not mean that they're necessarily a success. It's what the unimportant people do that really counts and determines the course of history. The greatest forces in the universe are rarely spectacular. Summer showers are more effective than hurricanes, but they don't get any publicity. The world would soon die but for the faithfulness, loyalty, and consecration of those whose names are unhonored and unsung. For the followers of Jesus Christ, no matter how common or ordinary or plain our daily routines appear to be, something powerful and immensely profound is unfolding, whether we can see it or not. Our lives matter. And the choices that we make are literally reverberating throughout the kingdom of God, even though we are totally unaware of it most of the time. And we would never have known how the course of history at one point was dramatically changed and altered by a few ordinary people if it were not for the work of an unknown author who recorded the story that we have here called the Book of Ruth. Because this story that we're going to be exploring over the next month is a story of the faith and loyalty not of celebrities, but of common people. And it's an example of how God often chooses to back up and be in the shadows, and yet His astonishing plans are moving forward through average people they are just going about their normal, uneventful lives. But to appreciate any story, especially when you jump into the middle of one, it's always important to appreciate the setting within which it is occurring. So look at the opening seven words of the book of Ruth. It gives us the setting. In the days when the judges ruled, so stop right there. This story of Ruth finds its historical setting in the preceding book called the book of Judges. And as you know, that was a time of war. That was a time of strife. The fantastic victories of Joshua and the people by faith that had occurred have long been forgotten. And now they've been followed by decade after decade, years upon years of spiritual decline and literally anarchy. Yeah, and sure, there were some brief periods of revival in Israel during the book of Judges, but they were short. And most of the time, there was just moral chaos all over the place. If you could summarize the moral tone in our day, by one word, you might choose to use the word whatever. (laughs) The moral tone in this day is summarized for us by the last sentence in the book of Judges. So turn back one page first. Here is how the tone of this day is summarized. Verse 25 of Judges 21, in those days there was no king in Israel, and here is the important thing to recognize, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In other words, everyone had their own idea what was right to do. This was a generation that was marked by a high degree of permissiveness. That doesn't sound like anything we know about, does it? (laughs) And all that then leads us now to the opening of the story in the book of Ruth. And we notice as we come to Ruth chapter 1 that a crisis unfolds rather quickly as we're told how disaster strikes in the opening five verses. In verse 1, verse 2, we see the choices that lead up to the tragedy. Look at the end of verse 1. So there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife, and his two sons. And as you saw in the video, we were given their names. It was Elimelech, it was Naomi, it was Maelon, and it was Chilean, and they were from the town of Bethlehem. So what's happening? Well, in their area of Israel at that time, there were a, there were lousy harvests, which had created a famine type of situation. People are struggling to find food because of poor rains, but also, as we know from the book of Judges, there was just constant warfare going back and forth across the land. And so what did, what did Elimelech choose for his family? Well, verse 1, they went to sojourn in the country of Moab. That word sojourn is talking about a decision he made to temporarily move to Moab. Two problems we have with that. One, it didn't end up being temporary. Look at the end of verse 2. It says, they remained there. They settled in. Second problem is that in the Old Testament, God expressed over and over again that His people were to stay in the land and not leave it. For example, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 16, Moses says, "I I command you today to love the Lord your God to walk in His ways, to keep His commands, decrees, and laws. Then you will live and increase, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. Or Psalm 37 and verse 3, David writes, Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. It's interesting that that last little phrase, enjoy safe pasture, can also be translated Feed on His faithfulness, meaning feed on God's faithfulness. So the Old Testament was clear. In other words, stay here. This is the place where God will bless. This is the place where God will be faithful to you, His people. Yet, this family left the land of Israel and the place of God's blessing. Why? Because it wasn't convenient at the moment. But note carefully, it wasn't impossible for them to live here. It was just difficult to live there. Ooh, Elimelech, he's a man of his day, just simply doing what is right in his own eyes. Now, watch the heartbreak that now follows, starting in verse 3. They went into the country of Moab and remained there, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabat wives. The name of one was Orpha and the other was Ruth, and they lived there about 10 years, and then both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two husbands, or with her two sons and her husband. So notice the deep tragedy that just occurs in this family. First, Naomi becomes a widow. We're not told how long they lived in Moab before this happened, but we do see that as soon as that happened, the two boys now marry. Then we have a decade. We have 10 years. After those 10 years, Naomi loses both of her sons. All the males in her family are now dead. Do you catch the irony that's going on here? The family that fled to survive is now suddenly on the brink of extinction. And look at that last phrase of verse 5, where it says, the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. In the Hebrew text, it paints a very vividness of her loss. It literally reads, she was left in separation from, far from, her two sons and her husband. Disaster has struck. Folks, it is heartbreaking stuff. So a series of decisions are made by the characters in the story at this point. It starts with Naomi making a decision, verse 6. Then, because of all that just happened, then she arose with her daughter-in-laws to return from the country of Moab. For she heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited His people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. Again, Naomi, she's in a foreign country at this point. They left home to make a better life for themselves, and now all the men who can provide are gone. They came to Moab looking for security, and now all of that security has been stripped away. So when the grapevine reports that the famine in Israel is now over, Naomi sees this as God providing for His people, so why stay here? It's time to go home. And once Naomi makes that choice to return, it's time for each of the daughter-in-laws to make theirs. And so, first of all, we see Orpha's decision. Look at verse 8. Now, Naomi said to her two daughter-in-laws, go, return each of you to her mother's house, and may the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. And the Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi, Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? See, in Israel at that time, because of the teaching of the Old Testament, preserving the family line was so important that if the eldest son died leaving a widow, then the next younger brother was to marry her to raise up children to preserve the family line. So what's Naomi doing here? She's presenting the very harsh facts of life to her daughter-in-laws. She's saying, all the sons are gone. And so even if I could marry now and quickly have a son, would you wait, what, 18, 20 years before marriage would be possible with him? In other words, Naomi sees no future for them to come with her. As Moabites, they have a greater chance of getting remarried if they stay in their own country. Orpha recognizes the truth of what Naomi has just said. So you notice down in verse 14 that she kisses her mother-in-law, meaning kissing her goodbye, and she does return back to her own home. So we have Naomi's decision, we have Orpha's decision. Now that leaves us to observe Ruth's decision. And look at the first word of verse 16, but that alerts us to an amazing surprise that's going to happen. Well, Ruth refuses to leave Naomi's side. Verse 16, but Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. And then as often as read at weddings, for where you will go, I will go. and Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more if anything but death parts me from you. Notice, Ruth chooses to remain faithful to Naomi, and, and her words here are expressing a very deep relational commitment. Why is that surprising? Because of the circumstances we just looked at in the first part of the chapter. Ruth has seen the way the God of Israel has treated this family. I mean, just look again at how Naomi describes it in verse 13. His hand, meaning God's hand, has been against me. Ruth has seen that. Yet Ruth has also seen something real and authentic about the God of Israel, and she wants in. She may not be fully informed, and we're going to watch this unfold even more in the coming chapters, but As small as her faith is right now, she is choosing to seek the Lord in coming with Naomi. So the two of them begin their 70-mile trek back to Israel and specifically back to Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem, as we hear that name of that city, all kinds of important biblical history comes flowing back into our minds. But at that time, Bethlehem was just a plain, ordinary town filled with plain, ordinary people going about their plain, ordinary lives. And the the road literally ended there in Bethlehem. It wasn't on the way to anywhere else. It was just this little village at the dead end of a road. Disaster has struck. Decisions have been made. And as Naomi and Ruth return and come home, we can now see from verse 19 down to verse 22 how their discouragement is expressed, specifically Naomi's. And as you saw in the video, in such a small town, the return of Naomi over a decade of being away was big news. Everybody was talking about it. And everybody came up or people were coming up and asking, are you really Naomi? And so what Naomi does is she expresses her grief in this situation in two different ways. First, there's a play on words. For she wants a change of name. Look at verse 20. She said to those who were talking to her, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. What's the play on words here? Well, Naomi in the Hebrew text literally means pleasant. And Mara in the Hebrew text literally means pleasant. bitter. In other words, what is Naomi saying? My life has been anything but pleasant over these past years. It's been full of very bitter events. You might as well call me Mara, bitter. Notice something here. Naomi is flirting with resentment. She is being tempted to let her circumstances define her. That's why she wants a change of name. But there's another way in which her discouragement is expressed here in this passage. Notice how she not only wants a change of name, she describes her change of fortune. Verse 21, I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity Upon me Now, it's interesting, at the start of verse 21, the words full and empty are put in a very emphatic position at the start of the sentence. Naomi is contrasting how she feels like she left full, and now God has reeled her back in empty. But remember, she's forgetting when she left, there was famine. There wasn't a whole lot of prosperity going on. And yet she considers that at one point she was very prosperous. Now she sees herself as an indigent. And notice how her words, she is holding God responsible for this. Verse 13, his hand is against me. Verse 20, he has made my life bitter. Verse 21, he has brought me back empty. He has afflicted me. He has made my life a disaster. And right here, what appears to be the lowest point in the story is where we can actually see the central point of this chapter so far. Notice how verse 22 now begins with a summary statement. So Naomi returned. Naomi is finally in the right place, even though things don't seem to be going right at the moment. What happened to Naomi and the choices that she made are given to us as a powerful yet simple truth for today. And the truth is this, when we've wandered away, the right move is to return. The drama of chapter 1 revolves around the repeated use of one key word, 20 times in chapter 1, you've got the use of the word return. And that word return highlights both a biblical fact and an existential fact that people wander away from God. And the wandering can be physical, like with Naomi and her family. They were not where they should be. But wandering can happen in other ways. It can be a compromise of our values. It can be a moral choice we make. It can be letting our spiritual passion grow cold or dull. It can be letting convenience replace living by conviction, biblical conviction. And the critical point in all of this is, like with Naomi, what do we do when we recognize that we have wandered? What do we do then? Do we ignore it? In our shame, do we we try to hide it? In our pride, do we we justify it? Or, Or do we turn back, turn around, and return to where we know we need to be? Is there a returning to the Lord? See, the first chapter of this incredible little book gives amazing insight into the reality of, of wandering and returning. And it should raise all kinds of questions in our minds, like what's going on inside of us during these wandering times? What is God doing as a result of, of my choices? And how do I respond to God when I recognize that I've wandered and I, and I need to return? Those are good questions. I'm glad you're asking them. Those are good questions. And they all point to the very powerful impact of this passage or this first chapter. The truth that when we've wandered away, the right move is to return is basically supported by three very important and powerful implications. Almost like three foundation stones that need to be laid in our lives for those times when we wander And by the way, we're going to need all three. Let's look at each one of them for a moment. Implication number one, it's possible to stay faithful to God even when it appears He has not been fair. By the way, did you notice in these verses that Naomi and Ruth had every reason not to return? God's been heavy-handed. God's made their lives bitter. Naomi feels empty. Naomi feels beat up. If this had happened to any one of us, what would have been our reaction to God? Maybe we would have thought in our minds, okay, God, I realize I shouldn't have rented that U-Haul and moved, but was that any reason to take away my husband and my two sons? I mean, isn't that being a little extreme? Isn't that being a little heavy-handed? I mean, I know I disobeyed a little, but I didn't disobey a lot. See, you can't really read chapter 1 without asking the question, why? For that fact, we can't live life without asking the question, why, can we? Why did these men have to die? It just doesn't seem fair, does it? I mean, the cause-effect ratio here just seems all out of whack. And Naomi not only realizes God's hand in this, but she also chooses to remain faithful even when God doesn't appear to be fair with her. She holds God ultimately responsible for all that's happened, but in so doing, she's not losing faith She's actually expressing faith. It's a kind of faith that, it's, that most of us don't know much about because it's bold, it's audacious, but it's completely authentic. Which means that when it feels like God's been unfair to us, when it looks like He's been heavy-handed, don't reject Him. Rely on Him. See, we may never have an answer this side of heaven to our question why, but we can remain faithful to our God. How? The first step is to come home. Just like the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15, head back towards the father. And that implication immediately transitions us to the second powerful implication or foundation stone we need. Not only is it possible for us to remain faithful when God doesn't appear to be fair with us. Second, my view of God's heart determines my response to hard times. Did you notice as we were working our way through this chapter that Naomi uses two different names when she is referring to the God of heaven? One of them is the title Almighty, which is the Hebrew name for God, Shaddai, which describes God as the powerful sovereign one. But then she also uses the title Lord, which is a Hebrew name Yahweh, which describes God as being very personal and very involved in our lives. See, Naomi knows her God very well. He is powerful Nothing can stop him. He is totally in control. Yet, on the other hand, he's also personally involved in the details of her life, and he is aware of her pain. Both are true. And that's why Naomi can complain of how God has treated her and yet not reject him. I mean, look again at the end of verse 13. What does she say there? the end of verse 13, she says, Oh, my daughters, it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Yet look at what she said just a few minutes earlier in the last part of verse 8. To the daughters-in-law, Oh, go return each of you to your mother's house, and may the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. And may the Lord grant that you find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Naomi understands God can make life hard, but God can also make life really good. (laughs) Naomi can describe her life as being bitter in verse 20 and yet not be a bitter woman. See, again, we need to admit most of us probably would never have returned. We would be so angry, so resentful against God and not seek His kindness to help deal with the pain and the grief that we are experiencing. Life will get rough at times. Yet it, our, yet it is our view of God's heart that will determine our response to hard times. And when we know Him well, Shaddai and Yahweh, Even though we may not understand Him and we cannot explain Him to anybody, not even ourselves, yet we will still lean into Him. Okay, it's possible to stay faithful to God even when it doesn't appear He's been fair. My view of God's heart is going to determine my response to hard times. Third third implication, and don't miss, if necessary, God will empty us in order to see us return to Him. By the way, if you don't remember anything of the message after you leave today, you remember one thing. Chapter 1 makes it very clear. God loves wandering people. He loves wandering people. And He loves us so much that He will do whatever is necessary to get us to recognize that we are out in a wandering and reveal our need to return to Him. See, many times it is our pursuit of what is convenient. It is our pursuit of of prosperity that leads us to wander away. And God has no problem, He does not mind, moving into our lives in a way to eliminate the idols that we are chasing or the broken cisterns that we are trying to drink from in order to reel us back in. Because, my friends, there is nothing, nothing more important than returning and enjoying an intimate personal relationship with Jesus on a daily basis. Nothing beats it. And our God wants our full focus. Our God wants our full attention. Our God wants our complete love. And if that means bringing us all the way down to empty in order to help us realize our need of returning to Him, He will do it. Now, I recognize that Ruth chapter 1 does not fully address the problem of pain, it really is only dealing with one small slice, but it does give us tremendous insight into one aspect of it. But it's important to remember what Sizu said. It is, with the, it is what the unimportant people do that really counts and determines the course of history. And the first step for wanderers is to turn around and head home to a God who, out of his love, will treat us with mercy. Does anybody here this morning need to take that first step?